you know, we like to talk about space occasionally, right? Something that we do here. Um, and we've spent uh, yeah, a few segments over the last few months talking about the moon uh, because there's a lot of interest in getting back to the moon, right? That Artemis mission. Ultimately, the end goal of the Artemis mission, and there's a number of stages or phases to it, we'll see humans on the moon. There'll be some sort of a lunar base built. But there's all kinds of work that needs to be done before that can happen. Uh, and we've talked to different, you know, how do you build roads up there? How uh, mining to get you know some of the fuel that you need? All these sorts of things. It, it's they're great fun to talk about. Um, and this this is another aspect that sort of fits into all of that. We're going to be talking about the dark side of the moon, which I was surprised to find out. Um, it's more than just an expression for for those of us down here on Earth. One side of the moon is always hidden from view. Always, we've never seen it. At least not from Earth. Um, but Canada may soon play a major role in, in, in shining a light on the dark side, so to speak. So let's let's get into this. We're going to chat with Gordon Osinski, who's the principal investigator for the Canadian Lunar Rover Mission. Gordon, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so just to get started here, I, I was I was surprised. Maybe I'm just uh, really, really dopey, but how does it happen that one side of the moon is always obscured from view? I mean, we're spinning, it's spinning sooner or later... Shouldn't we be able to see the whole thing? Well, not unless something kind of changes out there in the solar system, in the universe, um, because the moon is kind of locked to Earth. And so, yes, it's rotating, but it's rotating you know, around the Earth. And so we always see that the side that we're familiar with. And uh, as you say, there is a side that we try to refer to as the far side because it actually isn't dark. Okay. Um, but it's definitely, you know, I think it got the name the dark side because it was mysterious, right? Sure. Uh, we, we glance up at it, but we don't get to see around the, the corner. So do we, do we have no idea? I mean, we've had, of course, you know, different vehicles up around the moon and people on the moon. Have, do we have some understanding at least of what's on the far side of the moon? Yes, we do. From uh, so we've had uh, spacecraft orbit the moon for a number of decades yeah. now, and we have you know essentially complete coverage from satellites of what it looks like. You know, so photographic mosaics that cover the entire moon. Um, it's actually interesting. I mean, it looks quite different. Uh, you know, on the side that faces us, we, people might you know if you glance up next time, look at these big kind of roughly circular dark areas. Um, those are giant impact craters that were filled in by lava early in the moon's history. And so actually, if you look at the, the other side, it looks nothing like that. So there are some interesting differences. Why doesn't it look like that? What does it look like? Uh, it's a million dollar question. Uh, we, you know, <laughs> and scientists like myself are still trying to actually figure out, um, for example, why the moon had more volcanoes and more volcanism on the side uh, facing us. And maybe one way of answering that question is the work that you're involved with, which is a rover that will explore the far side of the moon. And the Canadian Space Agency are heavily involved in this, right? Absolutely, yeah. This is super exciting. This is the our first ever Canadian rover. Um, it's been funded by the Canadian Space Agency and the lead company um, kind of doing most of the building effort is uh, Canadensis, located here in Ontario. And uh, I have the honor of being uh, the principal investigator to this, uh, coordinating the science team and the activities. Um, but it's very much a national Canadian effort with, uh, you know, people from companies and universities almost from coast to coast, including uh, Dr. Chris Hurd from the University of Alberta there in Edmonton. Who we've spoken to before. Um, so when you go 
to get started on a project like this, I can't imagine the number of different, um, you know, things you need to be aware of and boxes you need to check. What, what's, uh, what are some of the challenges that need to be overcome in order to have a vehicle that operates on the surface of the moon? Uh, for sure. It, it is the most, uh, you know, space is challenging, right? Yeah. You, know, you may talk building the Canada on to survive in space is a biggest, is a big engineering challenge. And uh, a lot of listeners might be familiar with the rovers we have on Mars, um, which, you know, um, are big entities. Um, and, you know, we've got a lot of success with rovers on Mars for the last while. Um, but there's an even bigger challenge doing rovers for the moon than there is for Mars. And that's because of the temperature swings. Um, so because of the, that moon's orbit, uh, it essentially has a day. Um, and a night, but the day is about 14 Earth days, and then it goes into nighttime for about the same time. And just like on Earth, right, you think, you know, being out in the prairies, the temperature plummets during the night, and it plummets to almost minus 200 degrees oh, Celsius. Wow. And so, you know, if I had to pick one challenge, just designing this rover to be able to last the lunar night is definitely one of the biggest, you know, it's going to be one of the biggest engineering challenges of, of all time, right? It's, you know, highly technical, sophisticated instruments and rover that we want to switch on again after, you know, being that cold for 14 days. Um, switch back on. So solar power then. And when it gets really dark like that, you've got an issue. Yep. So, yes, this uh, we're a fairly small rover, so we can't, um, we're going to use solar panels to charge. And so, you know, we'll have a battery. Um, and so it's, you know, we're not going to switch it off because then it probably will never switch on, but it'll essentially go into a hibernation mode. Okay. And, you know, this is where the engineers, right, have to balance that the power, the battery is going to last long enough, and we've just got to warm those critical, you know, bits of uh, the, the rover to keep it uh, going. What's the focus of the mission? Let's say we get the, the, the perfect rover built, and I'm sure you will. It gets up there, it starts doing its job. What is it being called upon to do yes yeah, so we're going to explore um a part of the moon we've never been to um so we're going to be landing near the south pole and that region is interesting for kind of two main regions uh, reasons um the first is that from the satellites in orbit it's a region that we think there may be water ice and you know we don't know for sure and so you know, we've got detections with instruments from orbit, but we want to get on the ground and identify water unequivocally, which will, of course, be frozen in those temperatures. Um, that is, you know, hugely scientifically interesting, but it op also opens the door for using that water as a resource uh, in situ. You know, we could use it in the future for a rocket fuel, right. for humans to break down the oxygen and to drink. And so that would save us so much money. Um, in, you know, launching things from uh, Earth to the Moon. Um, and then the other big thing is that this is a region of the Moon where we think some of the most ancient rocks might be. And so we're going to do some great geology as well, uh, hopefully exploring this part of the Moon for, yeah, really the first time. And as I said, this all fits in with the plan of ultimately having some sort of a lunar base, right? And this kind of work needs to be done almost in preparation to, to find out, you know, what we can do in terms of resources and preparation to make that possible. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's not the stated end goal of a right. lot of the space agencies, but a lot of us are hoping that there will become a more permanent presence. It won't be like the Apollo missions that kind of came and went. And absolutely, um, we need to figure out, uh, yeah, what's there, 
And in particular, if we can find water, that would make a lunar base much more realistic because uh, it probably wouldn't be possible if we had to, you know, bring every kilogram of rocket fuel and water and oxygen for the surface of the moon. So we've got to find those resources on the moon to use there. Um, in terms of a timeline, what are we looking at here? When uh, When is this project supposed to be ready to go? We are hoping for 2026, which, okay. um, you know, we're 2023 now, right? So three years in the, to design a space mission, get this built and tested and launched is, uh, is quite a short time frame. You know, we're not starting from scratch. We spent the last couple of years putting in place these designs, um, but we're really, you know, things have ramped up and uh, the big focus right now is is finalizing the designs for all of the instruments and, and the rover. But uh, yeah, hopefully, yeah, three or so years time. Well, Gordon, I wish you the best of luck. And do you mind if we check in every once in a while and see how things are going? Absolutely. I'd love to. You know, this, yeah, hopefully a lot of Canadians will be excited about yeah. it too. We've talked about sending a rover to another world uh, for a long time now. And uh, yeah, it should be exciting. Absolutely it is. Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.